It's 11.06. Of course, a lot of talk and for good reason about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's visit to the White House. Earlier this morning, we brought you the news conference, the availability from both the president and the prime minister. I kind of got hung up on just a tiny little detail. Maybe not hung up, but it jumped out at me like a sore thumb. Barack calling Justin, Justin. Wondering if that was disrespectful or not. A ton of you chimed in, and in just a little bit, we'll get to some of those responses. Plus, we'll bring you former PM Brian Mulroney's take on exactly why the relationship with the Americans is so important. Plus, interim Conservative Party leader Ron Ambrose's thoughts on what she hopes to see come of this state visit. But of course, we know there are elements to the relationship with the Canada-United States, well, do we call it a trade dynamic, that aren't always discussed in the detail they probably should be. And that's why it's my pleasure to welcome to the program Mark Warner. You've heard Mark on the show before with MAAW Law. He specializes in international competition, trade, and investment law. Mark, thanks for making yourself available to us today. Thanks for having me. Now, I've been paying attention to these meetings, the state dinner and everything else between uh, the American president and our prime minister. What are some of the things you're keeping a keen eye on? Well, one of the first things I noticed is that the dinner tonight, they're going to be serving maple syrup from New England, which is kind of, kind of funny because, of course, you know, we have uh, so that's, a, that's one of the trade disputes, I guess, the longstanding one between Canada and the U.S. So I thought that was kind of a lighthearted way for the Americans to put that. Um, on the on the table, but uh, on a more serious note, I think um, one of the, the the big things that I guess has been done is has to do with entry and exit, and it looks like they're it looks like the two countries have ex- have agreed to expand the pre clearing the number of uh, airports in which you could pre clear for flights directly into the U.S. So that'll help if you're flying out of Billy Bishop in Toronto or some other airports, um, and that in return for that, uh, our government is going to agree to share more information about outbound passengers. Um, that the Americans have been asking for for a while. I think that will probably require some changes to privacy legislation in Canada. Um, but um, there was pretty much no way you would, you Americans would agree to pre-clearing, um, pre- to expanding the pre-clearance without that. The other part of that, which we have yet to see the details on, probably will involve allowing um, shipments, uh, trucks to cross the border uh, uh, more easily by allowing um, the clearance for customs to take place at the factory, if you like, or at the warehouse and not at the border, which should ease some of the uh, delays at the border. And that's been something we've wanted for for a long time. But again, in return for that, um, we'll probably have to agree to share more privacy information. Um, The softwood lumber thing, which has been a trade dispute for a long, long time, dating back to the 80s, uh, we got a measure of peace on that under the Harper government in 2006 when they signed a 10-year agreement with the U.S. That agreement expired, and there's a sort of standstill provision that stays in effect till October. Um, there's been no progress on that made today or announced today, and it looks like um, that no progress is likely for the foreseeable future. So those are a couple things that stood out. Uh, Mark, uh, the softwood lumber is on my list of questions. Yeah, I want to get in, into more detail on that in just a little bit, but it's certainly no sure. surprise, I think, to most Canadians that the, the border crossing uh, or just the border itself has not been the same uh, since the terror attacks uh, in New York City and at the Pentagon and elsewhere on September 11th, 2001. I was struck, though, when you actually look at the statistics. In 2000, 90 million cars 
and 7.1 million trucks crossed the Canada-U.S. border. In 2014, 59 million cars, down from 90, and 5.8 million trucks, down from 7.1 in 2014. Our public safety minister, Ralph Goodale, says there is a need to make the border more efficient. You think the Americans are ready to play ball on this? Well, I, I think that they do, but in return for that, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, you know, it's any kind of negotiation. One one side wants one thing, the other side wants something else. Um, I think the American position is, in return for that access, Canada has to share more information about people crossing the border. Um, and that's something that, you know, frankly, the governments haven't wanted to do um, up until now. And, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that's something the Americans would give up for free. So... Um, it's interesting. I guess. I guess the popularity of Justin Trudeau, and perhaps because he is a liberal and not a conservative, it probably makes him e- makes it easier for him to make uh, compromises on privacy. That, frankly, a conservative government under Stephen Harper would would just. Uh, vilified for doing. Well, what happens, though, if a Republican president is elected in November? Could all of this work or any progress that does occur just be washed away? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is, is I, again, I haven't seen the detail, but my guess on this one is this is one where Canada caved, you know, that in, in terms of we've given the Americans what they have asked for for a long time in terms of privacy. And I guess we'll see that when the legislation is eventually introduced into Parliament. But because uh, I think it will require a legislative change. But my, my guess here is that um, that essentially what's happened is that we have agreed to provide. You know, there have been a couple of incidents where you've had Canadian citizens of dual nationality or Canadian citizens who have come from another country, and you know the Americans have looked at it and said, well, we don't. You know, our, our program, we don't want. You know, if it's uh, we don't want anyone from that background or that country coming in. If it's uh, against space areas or some of those sensitive defense um, contractors. So I think that um, you know those kind of matters and privacy matters. This is probably one where where we've more or less had to um, agree to the U.S. Again, subject to seeing the detail, it hasn't come out, but that's what I expect to have happened here. Mm. Lawyer Mark Warner is our guest. Mark, I, I think most Canadians c- can chat about softwood lumber for a, a, <laughs> about two or three sentences, and then our knowledge runs out. But right. as U.S. housing starts boost demand for two-by-fours, as Canada's right. lower dollar makes imports into the U.S. more competitive, this becomes more of a contentious issue, doesn't it? But it does. Well, because I think what reality is that you're right. The housing, the housing is up, um, and the dollar's down. And the American producers, are, are now that that agreement has expired, basically what happened in 2006, the reason we, we, we agreed to take this off the table as a trade irritant is Canada agreed to sort of manage trade with the U.S. where we would collect kind of a duty ourselves and we'd keep it instead of paying an anti-dumping duty, which the U.S. Uh, US would keep. So, And then in return for that, the American producers agreed to, for 10 years, not bring trade cases against Canada, which, as you know, have been around since the 80s. Um, so that expired, and we're now in a standstill uh, provision, and basically the B.C. producers and other Canadian producers are saying, well, we don't want to renew it. We just want to sell into the U.S. We're competitive, and the American producers are once again saying, no, you've got those stumpage fees in British Columbia that are set by the government and aren't set by competitive market price. We regard that as a subsidy, and if you, without this agreement, we'll bring trade actions against you. And uh, I think that's where it stands. So. It's a kind of not a Mexican standoff. It's a Canadian standoff. Yeah, <laughs> because I, I mean, really, I, I think it, in essence, I mean, I know the Canadian producers don't want to renew the existing standstill agreement. But uh, Ryan, I'm both a Canadian lawyer and an American lawyer, and wearing my American lawyer hat, I can tell you that they will, there will be anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases 
brought against BC producers um, if you don't renew that standstill agree- that that agreement. So um, I guess that's a, that's going to be a hard argument on both sides. I think it's interesting to see President Obama's comments this morning, where he said, like, no side is going to get 100 percent of what they want. You know, both sides will probably get 160 percent of what they want. And if you think about that, that's kind of what we had for the last 10 years. It doesn't. It doesn't sound to me like everybody's optimistic, though. I, I saw uh, an interview with Carl Grenier, who's a, a former lumber council executive and trade yeah. diplomat. He says Canada is going to Washington, asking them to basically hit us on the head again. It's really quite amazing. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I get it. I mean, if the Canadian producers want, I mean, here's the argument. The argument on the U.S. side is that stumpage fee is not set competitively, and I don't think that Americans are ever going to see that point. So they're going to, as long as that's how we choose to price the you know the, the lumber or the stumpage whatever in, in BC, um, we're going to be open to those countervailing duties. Now so I don't know. I mean I, I think the Canadian the Canadian demand of going down there and saying, hey let's just let the free market prevail, which you know the dollar's low, you're, you know we should you know we're we're the competitive producer. Um, the American on the American side are going to say, well how do we know you're the American producer when the government's setting the stumpage fee? So that argument that we've been arguing about since the eighties, in my view, hasn't gone away it's not going to go away. Um, so, you know, it may well be that the Canadian producers want to try their hand at a countervailing duty suit again and test it and see whether they'll go with that. But I, my own view is very quickly they'll come to realize why we ended up thinking that the managed trade peace solution in 2006 was the right answer. Uh, Mark, it, it was interesting to see President Obama sign into law near the end of February a provision that banned the import of goods made by child and forced labor. Of course, it seems like the right thing to do. Some people might be surprised that that wasn't law already, but it's enforceable under the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which also includes Canada. Your thoughts on this? Well, you know, basically there's been something called the Tariff Act of 1930, um, which basically gave the U.S. Customs Authority to see shipments um, where forced labor was suspected of, um, and, and blocking imports. It hasn't been used all that often, um, but basically there were two languages. There's, there's two words in that old statute that talked about um, an exception for the products of slave labor if there was a, what they call consumptive demand. In other words, if, there was, if the American supply wasn't sufficient to meet the American demand. So all President Obama did is to basically remove those two words, and say from now on we're going to basically that the Americans are at the border are going to stop products coming in from slave labor. Um, so I guess to the extent that imports come into Canada from you know slave labor and they're going to be re-exported into the United States, basically they won't be able to do that. And I think that's what the TPP hook comes in. Should I mean, Canada I think have its own independent legislation, though? I mean, to, to reflect our intolerance for child labor or slave labor? <laughs> I'm not aware of it. I know we certainly signed on to international treaties, but I'm not, I can't think of a specific piece of legislation that, that addresses that as, direct, uh, as directly as, the, as what the Americans have um, in the Tariff Act of 1930. I could be wrong, but I can't think of a specific piece of legislation that does it. Obviously, we signed on to various UN conventions against slavery and, and, and that sort of thing. So it, it, it seems, I can't imagine that Canada would be in the position of saying, we want the right to continue to import from, 
Yeah. No <laughs> kidding, know, right? You know, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, of all the arguments that the anti-TPP crowd wants to raise, it would be a strange one for them to raise that we actually are going to be bound not to import products from slave labor. Yeah. I mean, and, and hey, this is this is maybe a bit of a stretch. Maybe it's a legitimate point. I was talking to somebody off the air about child labor yesterday, and they were saying, no, the one thing you have to consider is if, if, if you do everything you can to clamp down on it in different cultures, in different nations, what does that mean for the yeah. children and the families that have been earning the living? That's a whole other conversation for another day. But this would include goods like electronics from Malaysia, fireworks from Peru, bricks from Vietnam, and, and a whole lot more. Uh, it'll certainly influence global trade, say, experts. Some advocates for Western workers in America and Canada have said that it levels the playing field. Uh, in other words, could be good news for jobs here. It also means, though, I assume that prices will go up. I think it does. I, I think it, it, it I, I, you know, to the extent that it, it's a huge, um, you know, that, it, that, that, that there are huge imports coming, I think you would think that the, the prices would go up in, in, in Canada. I mean, some of the products are, I mean, I think they, the American list, they talk about fish and shrimp from Thailand and peanuts from Turkey. So we're not really producers of that gold from Ghana, carpets from India. But no, I, I think uh, we'll see how, 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 how this is really enforced. As you say, one of the things you have to determine is, is what's really, uh, what country really is you know, using practices of slave labor. And I think as a practical matter, that's going to end up being litigated, <laughs> certainly in the United States side. Mark, is there anything significant that I've missed asking you about? I don't think so. I think we've done the Plato to NATO. We've talked about, you know, softwood lumber and uh, the entry next. And I think all in all, I think this is, this is it's good to see that the two uh, leaders are at least a talking trade. I thought it was interesting that on TPP, the president, in his remarks, mentioned that um, that there had been discussions about the way forward. I noticed that in the prime minister's remarks, he didn't mention TPP at all. Uh-huh. So, so they're continuing uh uh, being on both sides of, uh, of the fence on TPP from our Canadian government continues, I think. Yeah, we'll see what comes of this. You made an interesting point off the top about the maple syrup. Somebody touched on it yesterday. I think it's a maple-glazed salmon they're serving. But the understanding here was that it was Canadian maple syrup. That, that, that might not be such a tiny little detail. But they compensated for it. I think they're serving Canadian rye whiskey. Or oh, okay. there's, another, there's another infusion in one of the dishes that has Canadian rye whiskey on it. But I, I, I don't think the New England... I think someone, I saw something where they, I think someone said that the, they asked about the maple syrup and the White House that well, it was all that was available. Yeah, I'm sure. Hey, Mark, <laughs> thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. As always, a pleasure. That's Mark Warner. You can follow him on Twitter at M-A-A-W Law, a lawyer specializing in international competition, trade, and investment law out of the state of New York and the province of Ontario. When we come back, your thoughts on the summit between the Prime Minister and the President. Plus, we'll try to get to those from Rana Ambrose, Brian Mulroney as well, and we're just about 13 minutes away from checking in with Derek Fildebrandt of Alberta's official opposition, the Wild Rose Party. Busy show, still rolling along. As you know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau down in Washington, D.C. It's the first state visit by a Canadian leader in nearly 20 years. An interesting point from a listener out of Red Deer who says this provision uh, signed into law by President Barack Obama back on February 24th that bans the import of goods uh, produced from child labor. Listener wonders if that includes farm kids in Canada producing goods going down to the U.S. Isn't that an interesting point? Former Conservative PM Brian Mulroney chimed in and the importance of this meeting at the White House between Obama and Trudeau. Here's what Mr. Mulroney had to say. Not much happens 
uh, on the international scale between Canada and the United States if there's not uh, a personal uh, relationship between uh, the president and the prime minister. That former prime minister, Brian Mulroney. Here's what current interim Conservative Party leader, of course, leader of Canada's official opposition, Ronna Ambrose, had to say just a little while ago about what she hopes to see from this meeting. I'm hoping that the Prime Minister can use this new special relationship to advocate for things that matter to us here in Canada and not just fulfill Mr. Obama's climate change legacy. I want him to come out strongly in favour of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. It's very important to our economy. And I'd like to see him raise pipelines and maybe potentially ask uh, Mr. Obama if he'll reverse his decision on Keystone. So there you have an idea of what Ms. Ambrose would be saying if it was her meeting with the American president. Now, we brought you their news availability earlier this morning, and I was a little taken aback when Barack Obama on several occasions referred to our prime minister as Justin. Now, many of you have pointed out that in our PM's subsequent address, he referred to the American president as Barack. I wonder if that was just in response, because as you know, if you watch TV or movies or if you pay attention to any news outlets, the American president is always referred to as the president or Mr. President, our prime minister typically referred to in the same line. Prime Minister, the Prime Minister, the Honorable whoever. So I wondered, is it disrespectful? Is it a power play? Big L says, at first I thought it was strange that Obama called him Justin, but then, of course, Trudeau called him Barack back, so I guess it's just fine. Another listener here, this is Big Sweden, interesting take, says, I thought that Trudeau speaking French while a guest in America was extremely disrespectful. Hmm. Another listener here uh, out of Drayton Valley says it's a power play by the president. It's like having someone sit in a chair just a little bit lower than yours. I wonder. Another says, yeah, you know what? It is disrespectful, but it's Trudeau. If you act like a kid, you'll be treated like a kid. But keep in mind, the president did refer to him as Mr. Prime Minister once. Justin called him Barack in his speech, says one listener. Another says, no, it's very disrespectful. Will in Blue Quill says Obama has a history of fawning and prompting in front of the media. Witness his and his wife's frequent appearances on late night talk shows. So it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that Obama would choose to invite the new shallow PM from a country that poses no influence on the U.S. And someone Obama can shop around D.C. like a new puppy uh, from Will in Blue Quill. Well, I will take issue with the fact that you're suggesting that Canada poses no influence on the U.S. The the, uh, president did point out that it's the longest, it's the most significant border between any two countries in the world, in the president's words, 5,000 miles and $2 billion of trade every single day. Julie says it's interesting that Justin only really addresses climate change while Obama discussed a lot of issues. Dan says, did he just speak French in English America? What an insult. Listener of Red Deer says Obama looks at our PM as a child, easily manipulated. Justin just wants to be popular on the world stage. He may spend more time on his hair than fighting for Canadian jobs. I think we know how that listener probably voted. Dave says the PM's speech and tone dictates the lack of respect he receives. He should get a new speechwriter. He's a child in an adult's game. Canada erred in the negative vote for Trudeau. 
He says it's a good lesson, though. Hopefully we learn from it. Gerald says by calling him Justin, he's basically saying Obama is. You have to earn respect. You don't just get it handed to you. An interesting take there. Another says this is just a lot of wasted breath, talking about bringing greenhouse gas down and renewable energy. I'm curious what our PM has to say, but I guarantee he won't touch on the biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, animal agriculture. Ooh. Angela says, I believe they have been uh, or had a relationship that's a little more personal. And maybe Obama may forget sometimes as a professional or a president. He should remember to address all as Mr. or Mrs. in the public eye. She says, I'll agree. It does sound a little disrespectful when he refers to others by their first name. I pointed out earlier, do you remember when Obama referred to Prime Minister Harper as Steve? I was like, Steve? As a Canadian, I mean, do you want a little more respect from our neighbors to the south? Or maybe I'm reading too much into it. Derek Fildebrandt's up next after these headlines. We've covered in-depth the state visit. Justin Trudeau down in Washington, D.C., our PM, of course, meeting with the American president and others. We saw John Kerry just chiming in as well on a live news broadcast. Our thanks to uh, Mark Warner, who joined us from MAAW Law on the text line to 630-630. Gary says, why does it even matter what President Obama thinks or says? He's on the way out. He's only giving his opinion. This entire visit is a waste of time. A year from now, their conversations won't mean anything. Whitney says the media asked our PM a question, asked him to respond in French. Then they said bonus points for that. She says JT should have still declined that answer in French. Listener out of Edmonton says if uh, the president is okay with what the PM calls him, that's all that matters. Marie says I get the sense that the PM and president are trying to appear buddy-buddy. Thus the use of first names, both of them pandering to environmentalists. Interesting. Several of you have suggested that I need to move on from this. Nick says, our two leaders have a meeting and all people can talk about is what they called each other and how dare someone speak French. If that's all people can focus on, they clearly need a new hobby. That from Nick. Thomas Lukasik chiming in on Twitter says, let's stick to what matters. There are real issues here. Mulroney and Reagan routinely referred to each other using first names. I will point out that we brought this up for the first time at 1125 in the morning, okay? So when something's buried two and a half hours into the show, I don't think that's primarily what we're focusing on. We've talked about TPP, we've talked about pipelines, we've talked about border security, we've talked about softwood lumber, we've talked about a ton of things. But just as would be the case if if two men and a woman are being greeted in a meeting... And the facilitator of that meeting says, Mr. Jones, Mr. Smith, and hey, cutie. Isn't that significant? Isn't that maybe the most significant development of the meeting? Remember through the campaign period when everyone said that Stephen Harper kept referring to the liberal leader as Justin, and that was a power play to try to make him appear in people's perception as young and unqualified? When people sit here and say, Jesperson, it's a non-story. It's a non-story that the president calls him Justin. I disagree. I'm in the business of communication. And there are tiny little nuances that are way more significant than you might think. Or maybe I'm way off base. It's happened from time to time. Derek Fildebrandt 
of course, as you know, a very vocal member of Alberta's legislature, the MLA for Strathmore Brooks, representing the Wild Rose Party, joining us over the phone this morning. It's been a little while since you and I had a chance to catch up. Thanks for making time for us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'll try not to get too off base here. No, that's okay. Well, I'm going to go off base right off the bat. Have you been paying attention <laughs> at all to the to the PM's visit down south? Have you been Have you been keeping an eye on it? Honestly, uh, I don't pay too much attention to Justin right now. I've been busy in the House debating uh, uh, issues like the the interim supply bill and uh, and uh, government relations with uh, the AUP. So now, should I spend 21 minutes reading into you calling him Justin? You can read whatever you like into that. Uh, Derek, uh, before we go any further, I'd like to bring this to our listeners. This was you yesterday in question period following the announcement that the Alberta government has hired a former union negotiator. This is Kevin Davidiak we're talking about to act as the government's chief advisor when it comes to negotiating with the union of provincial employees here in the province. This was Derek Fildebrandt yesterday. He will advise the government on labor negotiations with government unions like AUPE. The problem is that as of this morning, he is still listed on the AUPE's website as one of their chief negotiators. Please tell us, Madam Premier, that you didn't actually hire the fox to guard the henhouse. Derek, did the government give the official opposition something on a silver platter with this one? (laughs) Uh, Well, you know... (laughs) You call it question period for a reason. You ask questions, you don't get answers. We ask questions they don't they don't like. They and they answer questions that weren't asked. Um, look, I, of course, opposition likes to likes to make hay out of things the government have done. But I just wish they wouldn't have done this uh, in the first place. This is uh, very serious. And actually, I, I would correct something you said. The government did not announce that Mr. Davidiak would actually be. Uh, working for them. They actually did this by an order in council very quietly, and it was our researchers who found it. So what's really happened here is that uh, the government has hired one of the chief negotiators from the AUPE to now sit across from the very same table and negotiate with the AUPE. Now, in their defense, what they've said is uh, it's not uncommon for someone to have worked for a union and then worked for an employer, and that's quite correct. But what is extremely uncommon, if not unprecedented, is that he, well, just last week, was working for the AUPE. This is the very same table. He's not just changing sides in the orientation of the job. He's now going to be negotiating with the very same team that he worked for for the last five years, talking about the same thing. Okay, now let me play devil's advocate here for a second, Derek. If, if you're the general manager of a hockey club, and you know there's a good chance you'll meet a certain team in the Stanley Cup final, and you hire their coach away from them to coach against them, couldn't that be an astute move? Well, it's either one of two things. It's uh, either the government is negotiating in extremely bad faith with the union by stealing one of their guys who knows all of their inside secrets. And that would, that would be a huge labor code violation. But that's politics. Yeah, or, more plausibly, I, I would think, uh, what the government has done here is hired someone who is uh, very close with the NDP, um, who, and as, as I put it in question period yesterday, that it is really the, uh, the fox guarding the hen house here. I mean, l- let's be clear. that This is not any old union uh, debate, uh, negotiating with any old employer. This is the AUPE, which is le- legally and, f- and fundamentally a actual part of the NDP, the way the NDP is structured. AUP union bosses get a direct vote in who even gets to be the NDP leader. So there is a very 
strong relationship between the two. And I think, at the very least, the perception, if not, if not the reality, is extremely poor here, that they are taking uh, one of the chief negotiators from a union that is intrinsically and financially tied to the NDP to now negotiate with that very same union at the very same bargaining table. Now, Derek, it seems to me as an observer that this government is in an extremely tough spot right now. And I would imagine behind closed doors, I don't expect you to admit to it here, you may have your popcorn ready to see how while facing a 10 or $11 billion deficit and needing to find new contracts with Alberta's teachers and nurses, this government has its back against the wall. Realistically speaking, do you think, I mean, if you describe this as a family affair with the AUP and and the NDP. Is there even room for nepotism here? I mean, this budget's as tight as it's been in Alberta in a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a serious question. Uh, we're facing the most difficult financial uh, situation I think the province has ever faced. We're going to be staring down a $10.4 billion deficit this year, which is more than twice as large as the next largest deficit we ran in our history, which was in 1992. Um, the Wild Rose opposition believes we need a reasonable and measured approach to balancing the budget over in a multi-year plan, that it's going to take several years. No matter who was in power this year, I, I think it would be fair to say there would be a deficit. The problem is we've got to have a plan to get back to balance and control expenditures. And there's just no room right now for any kind of effective insider trading between the NDP and its unions. Now, we don't know what those deals are going to look like at the end of the day, but we simply cannot afford sweetheart deals to the dues-paying members of the NDP. We've, we are in, an, in a hugely challenging environment, and the Wild Rose has been putting forward constructive and helpful solutions to try to improve the situation. And one of those is calling for a government sector wage freeze. We're not even calling for a cut in it right now. I mean, people are losing their jobs, and some lucky people are actually taking pay cuts. They're not lucky to take a pay cut, but they're lucky to still have a job, and they're accepting pay cuts so that their companies can stay afloat. And I think that it is entirely appropriate that those of us collecting a paycheck from the government should at the very least not be seeing raises right now. So we're we're paying a very close – we're keeping a very close eye on how the NDP handle – their government sector labor negotiations. Our guest is Derek Fildebrandt, of course, the MLA for Strathmore Brooks, also the shadow finance minister for Alberta's official opposition, the Wild Rose Party. When we come back from this break, I'm curious to know, will we be seeing a shadow budget? Plus, you may have seen ripples if you follow the Alberta legislature hashtag on Twitter after uh, an exchange between Mr. Fildebrandt and Mike Morrison on social issues blew up. We'll get Derek's take on that after this. It's 1149. We're expecting a budget from our provincial government at some point in the first couple of weeks of April. As far as I can tell, uh, and by the way, thanks to our guest, Derek Fildebrandt, for holding the line, the MLA out of Strathmore Brooks, representing Alberta's official opposition, also the shadow finance minister. Derek, as far as I can tell, the Alberta Party's been the only one to release a shadow budget. On top of that, a royalty or climate plan as well. Will you be releasing a shadow budget come April? Well, actually, I have to disagree with the premise of what you said. The Wild Rose has uh, released by far the most uh, proactive 
and detailed policy recommendations of all the other opposition parties combined. Uh, we released a detailed balanced budget plan uh, during the election. Uh, we were the only uh, party during the election that released one uh, that had numbers that actually added up. Um, and we're going to be putting forward a very detailed plan to get the cost of government under control in advance of the budget coming out. So that is that will be a shadow budget? You will be releasing one? Well, you, well, you can call it whatever you like. You can. Uh, well, I mean, that's an official term. That's a, that's a real thing. A shadow budget is yeah. a real thing. Yeah. Well, I, look, I, in my previous uh, career with CTF, I uh, you know made a regular habit of releasing pre-budget recommendations about how to get uh, costs under control, and uh, we will be doing uh, something quite similar to that uh, in advance of this budget. Okay. Uh, you have to know I was going to ask you about this. I'll put it in the words of Robbie, though, who's listening and texting into 630-630. says, please ask Mr. Fildebrandt if he regrets his social issues prioritization tweet. This the one where you told Mike Morrison, a blogger out of Calgary, important issues, sure, these social issues, quote, but in all honesty, social issues just didn't rank in the top 100 reasons I ran. I find these debates stale. Robbie goes on to say, my dad, a staunch conservative, refuses to support the wild Rose Party in light of their social stances because two of my dad's sons are gay. If the Wild Rose Party intends to form government, they need to learn to moderate and support all Albertans. What's your response? Well, yeah, look, Twitter is uh, a sometimes uh, very subpar and even angry medium for one to engage in debate. Uh, Certainly regret the comments. Um, It was a a flippant uh, comment made uh, after being pursued on Twitter for about 24 hours. Um, Look, of course, uh, I care very deeply about social issues and protecting our LGBTQ youth, and uh, we're absolutely committed to the equality and dignity of of all Albertans, and I I really don't think people should try to make political hay out of those things. What I meant, and perhaps uh, poorly expressed, was that if we do not get unemployment under control, if we do not get our economic decline under control and our uh, our unsustainable budget under control, there will be social issues that come from that. For instance, uh, just a few days ago, I met with about eight unemployed oil field workers in my constituency in Brooks, and we are having real social problems that come with unemployment. And what I meant was that my focus is on addressing these major economic and physical issues because they will become serious social problems, as they are already becoming. Derek Fildebrand, MLA for Strathmore Brooks, Wild Rose Shadow Minister of Finance and Chairman of the Public Accounts Committee. Always appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot. You bet. Anytime. We'll get back to the text line for some closing remarks from you right after this. Well, we've covered a lot today, haven't we? Most recently, though, the hiring of the Alberta government, by the Alberta government, rather, of Kevin Davidiak, a former employee of the AUPE, now acting on the government's behalf to negotiate a deal, in theory, anyway, nothing's happened yet, with Alberta's nurses and teachers, the AUPE uh, flip-flop, you might call it. Sherry, who's listening in, doesn't necessarily think that it's a bad thing. As a matter of fact, on the text line, Sherry says, you know, he's got intimate knowledge of what's going on. He's got a relationship there. This this actually could be a, a good thing. Hmm. 
I don't know. I mean, it is it is one of those things where, like I said, I mean, the metaphor of hiring the coach of the former team to coach against them. But at the same time, the guy resigned, at least officially, from AUP on Monday, announced as one who will negotiate against them on Tuesday. It does seem a little strange, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Brian says, Mr. Fildebrandt's attempt to recover from his tweet about a lack of focus on important social issues, such as LGBTQ youth in our schools, continues to demonstrate why he and his party are not the right party to support all Albertans. Another listener says, I'd like to see him tweet an official apology. On the flip side, a listener out of Fort McMurray says, Mike Morrison, the blogger involved in the controversy, is a troll who picks Twitter fights and then twists words around to victimize himself, and then he cries for help. I wouldn't have time to debate with that weasel either. Well, let me go on record as saying I'm a good friend of Mike Morrison. Mike is an ally and an advocate and an important voice in Alberta, so I'll heartily disagree. But that doesn't mean we won't give you the floor to voice your opinion, what we're all about. Thanks for being a part of the conversation today, friends. We'll do it all again tomorrow. A great Friday show in store. Tonight, go oil. We'll talk to you soon.